of these weeks, I'd like to just put in that responsive refrain, not the word of the Lord, but the weird word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What a strange story. You know, I may be a, a younger man. I mean, I'm, I'm of age now. I'm 40. I had one gray hair. I've been married almost 15 years. I may be a younger guy. I may have a simple faith, but I do know one thing. One thing I know, and that is that you do not call a woman a dog. I know one more thing, that when you're trying to help a guy out, you don't spit on him. And when you want help, you don't want to be spat upon. To summarize the words of a well-known, respected, ancient theologian, you can pick your friends, you can pick your nose, but you can't pick your friend's nose. (laughs) Ha ha. (laughs) And yet, this story is meant to shock us. I mean, really. Not to be underestimated for those of us, some who have been in church many years, some who are, you know, pretty decent at being generally moral and religious. This story is meant to shock us. What in the world is happening here with this woman and these words and the deaf man? And so it's important that we remember the context, the backstory that this all ties into a section in Mark's gospel, chapters 6 through where Jesus is extending his ministry beyond the Galilee. He has shared the good news of the gospel. Gospel means good news. The proclamation of the kingdom of God is coming. Repent and believe in his own hometown. And then Capernaum, his home base. And now he is taking this good news where it is meant to go, where it must go beyond those borders. And yet the immediate context of our scripture is all this bit that we've been dealing with the last two weeks about purity and holiness and who is clean and who is unclean and what clean people do and what unclean people do and what must you do to be clean. All of these rules and regulations, traditions of men established by the religious folks so that all the good Jews could know who is in And who is out? Who are the insiders, the clean, those within the camp of God's covenant community, those who get to receive the promise and blessings and drink deeply of the well? And those who are out, they are unclean. And the most unclean of the unclean were the Gentiles. But that's why Jesus came. And so not only does this text immediately confront the debates about ceremonial cleanliness with the religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes, but it reminds us that this is Jesus' mission. The kingdom must go forth, not only to geopolitical ethnic Israel, but to the world. This is a gospel of the kingdom of God for all who would believe, doesn't matter how you're born, high-born, low-born, somewhere in between, young, old, decent person, horrible past, the whole mix, the whole, the whole stew is to be mixed up by Jesus and offered up to the Father because of his finished work. Mark reminds us here that the heart of God through the God-man, his son, is to pursue the lost. Love pursues the lost, and it's costly. And I want us to hear this this morning. 
How are you no different than this Syrophoenician woman? Perhaps desperate and in need. Perhaps more so than you even realize. How are we found too with the deaf and mute man and our own spiritual inability to hear the word of God to us? However you came in this morning, here's the point, however you came in, we say this every week because we need to hear it every week. We need the fresh bread of the gospel every week. However you got here today, the love of the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit pursues the lost, pursues you by name for his glory and for your joy. And so what? So that we might be filled up on this day to the brim and poured out in Santa Fe. In that sense, perhaps Mark is also tying us back to that strange episode that we heard about a few weeks back with the disciples where Jesus calms the sea and yet we're told that even after Jesus walks on water, their hearts were hardened. How will Jesus soften the hearts of those who think they understand who God is and what he should do and how he should bring his rule and reign, his kingdom, kind of, you know, what's expected of a good young Messiah. And so I love this verse in 24. It says that Jesus entered a house and he didn't want anyone to know. He's there to get some rest. He's there to get away from the, the drama with the religious leaders who walked all the way up from Jerusalem to meet him. And yet, what are we told? He goes to rest, but he could not be hidden. As if Mark is reminding us in these two stories that not only does love pursue the lost, but love pursues the lost in the hardest of places. Even Tyre and Sidon. That the light of God cannot be hidden. The lamp cannot be put under a bowl. So it's not just that Jesus pursues the lost in his black robes and his pointy hat, you know, during office hours when he's available and it's convenient. His love pursues the lost in the hardest of places. And make no mistake, uh, this story would have been a, a great scandal to the hearers. Because if you're a rabbi and you claim to be the Messiah, there's probably one place you should not go, and that's Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon, modern-day Lebanon, north, what is that, east of Galilee. And it was notorious. Notorious for the judgment of God, these were Canaanites, and notorious for paganism. The area had long since lost its love for God. It had been Hellenized. It was under Roman occupation. And when I say notorious for paganism, I mean there is indeed a sliding scale in the, ancient, near, in the ancient world. Some places were just kind of a little bit bad, pagans. These guys were really bad. The worship of their idols frequently demanded sacrifices that we civilized folk would consider utterly atrocious. They loved power, they loved pleasure, they loved themselves, and they hated the Jews. And so Josephus, the great historian, the great Jewish historian, Josephus says that those who lived in the region of Tyre and Sidon were among our bitterest enemies. And yet Jesus goes there. <laughs> Don't you just love Jesus? Don't you just love the way that he breaks the rules of religion so that he can rescue to himself souls that he loves? This is the only time in the ministry of Jesus Christ 
that he leaves the known national borders of Israel. And this is where he goes. As if Mark is speaking to our hearts, he came for sinners. He came for outsiders. He came for the lowly and the lost and the despicable and the irredeemable and those who are well beyond the point of no return. He came for you. He came for sinners, not just the righteous. And so we see in these stories that the blessing of God, the covenant grace of God, is a blessing that goes beyond borders. Yes, national geographic borders, undoubtedly, but especially the borders and the walls and the blockades that we put up in our lives, in our hearts. His love pursues the lost. On Father's Day, we might ask, what is a man? The first thing a man is, is one who spreads his arms out to simply say, I am not the Christ. I can't save myself. I am not the Savior. And because of that, I need help. And because of the fact that I need help, I can go to God who helps me. And because God helps me, I have now grace and mercy to bestow on those around me who need help. When we ask the question of what a man is, we are or at least should be drawn to the God-man, the Christ, the one who can save. And I believe these two short stories show us a beautiful picture of the heart of God. Two weird, offensive, strange stories. So let's jump in. The first is the woman In the story of the woman, Jesus reveals to his readers and to us that his kingdom and mercy are for all who trust in him. Not just a certain kind of people, but for all who believe. This woman believes she has great faith and the blessings of the kingdom are hers. So the blessing is for all in the story of the woman, this blessing beyond borders. To understand why this is so incredible, we need to think a bit more about her plight. As I said, for any man who claims to be an authorized rabbi of Yahweh, much less the Messiah, this was a place you did not go. But it's worse than that. Because even if you were to go to Tyre and Sidon and be surrounded by your religious entourage, you know, with their super soaker guns full of holy water to shoot away the unclean, even if you were to do that, you didn't go anywhere near a woman like this. Nowhere near her. This woman has every strike against her. We're told she's a Syrophoenician, which means she was probably born and raised in that region. She's most likely of Canaanite descent, an Arab. These are the people that God told Joshua to clear from the land. The Jews thought they were scum, the lowest of the low. And so the Jews had a name for them, the folks who lived in this region. Anyone want to guess what it is? Dog. The Greek word kuon. Kuon. We'll return to that later. But know this, that it would be already unthinkable for any Jew to have anything to do with a woman like this. She is not just unclean. She is the epitome of unclean because of who she is, where she's from. She has it all over her. Add to that the fact that she is indeed a woman. And that in the ancient world, she would have no right to come into a house like this where the rabbi is trying to get some rest and throw herself on the floor. In fact, in most cases, she would be hauled off by the disciples and thrown out the door. 
And worse upon worse, Mark tells us that her daughter is dealing with a problem. Physical, spiritual, a combination of both, we're not sure. He refers to it as a possession. Twice later, but on the first mention, we're told that the child, the daughter, has an unclean spirit. So now you see how it ties to Mark 6 and 7. She's unclean, she's in an unclean place, and she's so unclean that now her kid is unclean. It couldn't get any worse for this woman. And yet the text tells us that she's desperate. And if you're a parent or a grandparent and your kid is in need, your kid is hurting, and you've tried everything, you've gone to all the little high priests of your region, you've taken all the potions, you've prayed all the prayers, you're at the very end of yourself, you don't care what the world says about what you're allowed to do. When your little girl, when your little boy is in trouble and hurting and in need, every parent knows what it means to transcend all of those barriers, to get to one that you dare beyond hope might help. Her need is too great to be concerned with the stereotypes and mores and norms that would to her be barriers to the grace and the kingdom of God. Her problem is not a Syrophoenician problem or a Gentile problem. It's a universal problem. She has a child. The child is hurting. And she is desperate. The same problem that everyone made in the image of God has that we do sadly live in a broken world and we too are broken. And with all of our might, with all of our power, with all of our money and with all of our intellect, we often find ourselves unable to save and help those we we most long to. So she comes to Jesus and we're told that she begs him. Perhaps Mark is once again, I think he probably is, indicting the religious leadership that Jesus has just interacted with in Jerusalem. Why? Well, we're not only told that she begs, petitions, beseeches, and the idea here is that she comes to him saying, no one else can help me, only you. Everything I have is thrown at your feet, but she bows down. She even calls him Lord. And so here it was, an episode prior where Jesus is among his own people, the children at the table, Supposedly, those to inherit the covenant promises of God's bread, and yet they want nothing to do with him because he doesn't fit in their box. And she comes to this completely unclean, unworthy, helpless woman, and she is showing all of Israel how they are supposed to prostrate themselves before the king of kings. She begs Jesus, help me. She bows before her king, And as Jesus is fond of doing, he responds to her. And yet his response is strange. Dog. (laughs) This is probably one of the strangest responses we see from Jesus to anywhere, anywhere in the scriptures. And so it's really important that we do two things here. First of all, that we understand the metaphor of the table. In ancient Israel, they believed that it would be Israel, the children of God, who were given the bread of God. They would be fed, they would be strong, they would come out with swords with the Messiah, and they would slice down everybody in the whole world who stood up against them, especially the Romans. Everyone else, the dogs, the Gentiles, the unclean. But you also need to understand the idea of dog. Dog for those in Israel. The first word, kuon, is a slur. 
functionally a, a racial slur that the Jews used for anyone that was unclean, especially those in Tyre and Sidon. But there is another word for dog. You see, in those days, most dogs, it wasn't like Santa Fe, okay? I know how some of you all roll. Most, they weren't taking dogs around in strollers, all right? Dogs are eating better than human beings, and some dogs in this city, sadly, are doing better than some of the kids in the city. It wasn't like that. Dogs were gross. They were in packs. You wanted nothing to do with dogs. They might get scraps, but then they had to go away. And yet there was another word, because they had started to domesticate some dogs, and the other word was not kuon, but kunarion. And this was the word for a household pet, a beloved friend, Fido. And if you have a dog, which we know are the most superior of all the Lord's household pets, if you have a dog, you know how precious, I'm serious, I mean, how precious that dog can be. So, you know, stroller jokes aside, there's something about the love and care and compassion and just unconditional love of a wonderful dog that kind of shines forth to us true things about who God is. That was the other word, kunarion. When Jesus addresses this woman, he uses that word, kunarion, not the slur, not the word dog. And here he is testing her faith. They have entered into a battle of wits. He's telling her the truth. Look, ma'am, you know, you know that God's covenant blessings and God's covenant promises need to come first to the people of Israel. And those Kunarion dogs, the, even the household pets, I mean, it's, is it for them? It may not be for them yet. And she responds to Jesus with such beauty and such wit and such faith. She says, yes, Lord, I know that's true. However, I know that your blessings, your covenant, your faithfulness is not one of scarcity, but one of abundance. It's not one for a few, just the ethnic Jews. It might even be one for all. It might be one for me. Here's what she's saying. I realize I am not a Jew, not a part of God's covenant people of Israel, but I trust that because of God's goodness, I can still benefit from the messianic grace and love of his kingdom. I know that the blessings are primarily and firstly for the Jews, but I want the extra overflowing blessings that will eventually go to the world. And I want them poured out here and now and for me. That is why Jesus says to her in not so many words, your faith has healed your daughter. It's truly a beautiful interaction. She believes and God heals. Her faith is counted to her as righteousness, as the justice of God. The justice of God to overcome the pain and the brokenness of the world manifest in her daughter. Her belief in the cleanness and the perfection of Jesus becomes her own cleansing and that of her daughter also. She is the most lost and yet she is saved in the very same way any of us are saved and rescued and redeemed from the ravages of sin in the world by simply putting her simple trust in the one who can save. Not works, not effort. She has nothing to offer. All she has is need. And Jesus reminds us once more, that's how the kingdom comes. All you need is need. All you need is need when you come to Jesus, and he is enough. This is how the kingdom comes. 
to the lost and the despised. It's an incredible story. A rabbi going up into the region of Tyre, healing a woman, an untouchable woman with such simple faith. It's sort of the first punch of these two. The second is really a knockout as it concerns the way that God's blessing goes beyond borders. Again, with the woman, his blessing is to all. If there's hope for this woman and her daughter, there's hope for anyone you know in Santa Fe. Even the most frustrating people, even the people you and I look at and go, yeah, there's kind of no way for that person. This story proves us wrong. Blessing without Blessing beyond borders means blessing for all. The story of the deaf man shows us that that blessing is not a halfway blessing, but fully. Jesus comes to heal us at the point of our need and in a way we can feel. And I just, the story of the deaf man, there's a lot to say here, but you just have to see like the tender mercy of of God in this. Jesus is in a place where not only are you not supposed to be near unclean people, but the last thing you do is touch them. But do you know why they thought that? They thought that in ancient Israel because they thought that somehow if they touched an untouchable person like this deaf man, I mean, what, what had he done wrong in his life maybe to end up this way? Was it him? Was it his family? Was he, was he cursed? Was it his fault? If you touch someone like that, you could get it on you. You could get the stink on you if you got too near the unclean and the unholy. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is coming in the exact opposite way. Instead of what is unclean making him unclean, he is the perfectly clean one with all the power to make clean, to forgive, to redeem, to adopt his children. And where he goes, he's not made unclean. Where he goes, he makes clean. That means that when we go out of this room into this place that God has called us, this mission field where we want to share good news with people. And we're not, you know, we don't make them projects. We don't need to beat them over the head with the Bible. We certainly don't need to teach them all the church rules before they show up. We go out to this place. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be afraid of being unclean. Because if you're a Christian this morning, the Holy Spirit lives in you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And all of the Old Testament prophecies about the new heavens and the new earth, about heaven, say that now the river will flow out of the temple. That's why Jesus goes. That's why Mark gives us these stories. Like this man, we, we share in his plight. We have spiritual deafness. Indeed, the Old Testament refers to the spiritually deaf time and time again, and even refers to this as a main mark of, of idolatry. You know, you make these little blocks of wood and they have ears, but they can't hear, mouths, but they can't speak. Coming into this place, into these needs, we see the tender compassion and mercy of Jesus. He doesn't get made unclean. He makes clean when he goes. And the text shows us his compassion and mercy to the deaf man in five stages. We can go through them quickly, but again, we should just marvel at these things. I mean, behold your God. Behold your God who goes where he's not supposed to go who heals who he's not supposed to heal, who touches who he's not supposed to touch, who shows mercy and compassion on those who are undeserving. Behold your own story. First thing Jesus does is he takes the man aside. 
Commentators agree that this is a way to care for him, to give him some privacy and dignity. It's almost as if Jesus is showing us that correlated to how deeply someone is hurt, that they need to be handled in this sort of careful and tender way. They, need mer- they don't need rules and to get beat up with religion. They need someone to put their arm around them and say, hey, let's go over here. I want to listen to you. I want to pray for you. I want to love you. And then we see the touch of Jesus. The touch and the spit. Now, the spit's a little weird, but in those days, it was said that the saliva of a holy man, even a holy prophet, uh, would have had some spiritual power to it. This wouldn't have been very strange to the original hearers. But notice he has a problem with ears and tongue, and Jesus touches him in both places. Again, I think this is so deeply important for us. That in your place of need, in your place of brokenness, the stuff you don't want to talk about in church, and neither do I, the stuff that's not working, the stuff that hurts, the place of trauma and shame and woundedness, Jesus doesn't look at that and go, yeah, I'm going I'm to stay away from that. You, I'll take 90% of you, and why don't you deal with that 10% and then come back to me and we'll talk. It's literally in that very place of need and brokenness that the Savior goes to touch and to heal. He meets this man against odds and regulations at the very point of his need. He cannot hear, he cannot talk, but he can feel the touch of the Savior and that cannot be denied. And we're told that after this, Jesus sighs. Again, this is good news for us. It's good news that we have to share with our friends. Why does Jesus sigh? I'm told he looks up to heaven. He knows where his power comes from, but he also looks down at the world. He doesn't look at the people in the world and go, okay, you're my, you're my enemies. He knows that not only are they perpetrators of sin, sure, of course, they have personal responsibility. They do make choices, but they're also victims of it. They're also victims of systems and worldviews and powers and principalities that are opposed to the gospel. And so the sigh of Jesus is if he is saying to this man and to the whole world, I'm going to do something about the injustice here because I care about it. I care about the injustice and the pain and the evil in the world. You know, the, the, the Phoenician gods are just a bunch of superheroes up in heaven drinking wine and trying to steal your girlfriend. Or it's just like a big force or it's fate or whatever. Or, you know, the worst of all, which takes the most faith to believe, is that we're all just material. You're just a complex, you know, computer banging around the ether until you die. Jesus says no to all of that. He says, actually, there is a God who cares, who is Yahweh. He doesn't just care about one people. He cares about all And he doesn't just care from a distance. He cares to reach out, be near, move toward and touch. And he's going to do something about the pain. And it's in this way that Jesus speaks. And when he speaks, he creates for he is God. We see Genesis chapter 1 right here. The new heavens and the new earth, the new kingdom of God is brought to bear upon this man. And he is healed instantly. His ears are open, his tongue speaks. He doesn't need to learn to speak again. He is made whole. And for this man right here at this time, it's a resurrection. It's absolutely a resurrection. His life was in shambles, 
In this culture, he would have been ostracized. Undoubtedly, he was extremely alone in these things that had happened in his body. And not only does Jesus come near to him and show him he is not alone, he makes him whole. Just like the Syrophoenician woman whose simple faith saves her, this man's friends who beg Jesus believe Jesus works through that faith and he isn't halfway healed. He's completely whole. This is God's heart, the nature of God's kingdom. Not only to heal, but as the story of the deaf man shows us, to heal tenderly. And that's why they're astonished. You see it at the very end. They are rightly astonished. They use some Old Testament Messiah language here. He does all things well. That's Old Testament Messiah language. They are in awe. Who is this Messiah? Who is this one who helps and heals even the least, even the most lost? And yet, if Mark is showing us through the ministry of Jesus, that's why he came. He didn't come for everybody who has it all together or thinks they do. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. These two stories show us the blessing of Jesus, his healing, his power, his mercy, his grace, beyond all borders, external and internal, a reminder that love pursues the lost and that his light goes to the hardest places. And I pray we would leave with that hope because that's the only hope we have to share. The same hope that they called upon in Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Let's pray. Well, Father, you are a good Father. We thank you because this is our story. You pursued the lost. In our desperation, you met us. Because God, you, you are a God of abundant grace and mercy. There is plenty of your covenant faithfulness to share with the whole world. Help us to trust you. Lord, and I pray that we would be those like Jesus who would move toward those in need and touch. Help us to not be like the religious leaders judging on the traditions of man, folding their arms. But Lord, you bring us here every Sunday to fill us up, to remind us that we're your children, to remind us that not only does your love pursue the lost in the abstract, you've pursued us so that that is what we might share as we leave. As we come to this table, Father in heaven, help us to feast upon all the fulfilled promises of Jesus, your son, even as we long for the day when all of our pain and hurt and brokenness will finally be made new. You will wipe every tear from our eyes. Help us to feast now on this food that we might be strong to care for those around us. Remind us that your blessing does transcend every human border. Help us to never forget that your love pursues the lost. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.